The reading begins at verse 14, where the Apostle Paul says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law or principle at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Every now and again, I think I surprise someone by my response when they tell me about their struggle with sin. They're surprised, I think, because I'm not surprised or disgusted. Surprised maybe that I don't look down on them as sub-Christian, that I accept struggle with sin as normal. And one of the reasons I'm not surprised is because of what Paul writes in today's text. This godly man, this fervent Christian and divinely appointed apostle admits to a struggle with sin so intense and persistent he sometimes feels wretched about it. Look with me again at what he writes in Romans 7, 14 and following. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do, for what I want to do I don't do, and what I hate I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. Paul is still talking about the law, his subject for all of Romans chapter 7, which we've looked at for the past couple of Sundays when gathered together. He's talking about the place of the law in God's program of salvation down through the centuries and acknowledges that although the law is praised in the Old Testament, that Paul loves the law and affirms the law, he says that the law is limited. It cannot make us right with God. As we saw last week, its chief function is to show us how we need justification even though it can't confer justification. It shows us how awful sin is so that we seek the cure 
but we're not going to find it in the law itself. None of this is the law's fault. The problem lies with us. Several years ago in California, a city dump truck backed into Curtis Gokey's car. The car was badly damaged, so Gokey sued the city for $3,600. There's a catch to the story. Goki himself was driving the dump truck that crunched his personal car. Uh, he admitted that it was his fault, and so the court dismissed the suit, said, you can't sue yourself. The city wasn't to blame. Goki was to blame. There's nothing wrong with the law. There's something wrong with me, Paul says. He's still talking about the law, but, but he's not saying just what he said in last week's text. He's saying something different. He's now using the present tense. I am. I do. I want. I don't want. I hate, and so on, through the end of the chapter. Last week's text was in the past tense, as Paul described his pre-Christ experience with the law. And this shift of verb tense is one of the main reasons that I believe Paul is, in these paragraphs, describing the normal Christian life. Bible believers have struggled to understand Paul's words here for centuries and have not always come to the same conclusions. Valid reasons can be offered for any of the interpretive options that I mention in the bulletin, sermon crumbs, and there are other interpretive options, none of which are ridiculous. There's no time in the pulpit to rehearse the debate, but I, I probably should give you three reasons why I think that in these lines, Paul is talking about the normal Christian experience. And the first is the one that I have just mentioned, the shift of tense from the past to the present. I have not encountered any convincing explanation for why he shifts to the present tense, except the explanation that he is now depicting his experience as a Christian. And the most natural, straightforward interpretation of these sentences, it seems to me, is that by I, Paul means himself, and by I am, I do, and so on, he means now. I read one man's testimony, which probably is the testimony of millions of Christians down through the centuries. He said that in the church of his youth, he had been taught that Paul's language in these paragraphs could not possibly describe the normal Christian life, that Paul is talking about his pre-conversion experience or the experience of anybody outside of Christ who relies on the law for salvation. And that is a possible, reasonable interpretation. But the odd thing is, this man said, is that Paul's words describe exactly how he felt. And that would be my testimony. And the testimony 
of countless believers down through the centuries. Even some of us who have been Christians since childhood endeavor to live a life for Christ, yet have no trouble at all making Paul's words our own. Which leads me to uh, my second reason for taking this as a description of the normal Christian life. It seems to me that this is how a Christian and only a Christian would describe struggle with sin. Hatred for sin, wretchedness over sin, does not characterize the man or woman outside of Christ. Rather, the unconverted person excuses, justifies himself, tries to sidestep responsibility. Far from feeling wretched, he may find fault with the law or even boast of his sin. Think of daytime talk shows and how many parade their perversions as a matter of pride. The godly man or woman swims upstream, shoulders sometimes aching, lungs screaming for relief. The shoreline, heaven, when we're beyond temptation, still seems a long way off and we gasp, what a wretched man I am. The ungodly person doesn't feel wretched. He's floating with the current. Other arguments could be mentioned, but here's one more reason that I think Romans 7, 14 through 25 is talking about the normal Christian life. And that is that the wretched struggle Paul describes here is consistent with what he says elsewhere. For example, Galatians 5.17. There he writes, The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit desires what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that, listen, you do not do what you want. Even if in Romans 7, Paul was describing non-Christian experience, all interpreters agree that when you cut to Galatians 5, he's talking about Christians, where this battle rages between what the Holy Spirit wants and what the sinful nature wants, so that we don't do what we want to do. I believe that in Romans 7, he's simply saying at greater length what he says in Galatians 5.17. Or, if your Bible is open to Romans 7, you can look across the page at Romans 8 and verse 23, a text that we'll get to in several weeks. We ourselves, he says, who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, a kind of down payment on our full salvation that God has given us here and now, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit nonetheless groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This groaning, this longing to have our salvation complete, this looking forward longingly to the day 
when not only will there be no more crime, no more death, no more tears, no more sickness, but there will be no more sin. I will never sin again. I long for that. And when Paul talks in Romans 8 about groaning, I think he's saying the same thing he's saying in Romans 7 about right now, I sometimes feel wretched. Folks who think that the wretchedness of chapter 7 cannot be the normal Christian life, but must be the Christian life, I mean the pre-Christian life, or a subpar Christian experience, and we need to get into Romans 8, need to pay attention to verse 23 of Romans 8. The realization that the end of temptation and struggle with sin is not yet. So Paul's argument may advance, it does advance from chapter 7 to chapter 8, but not his experience. He experienced both victory, praise God, and moments of defeat. Both the spirit led life and failures that left him feeling wretched sometimes. J.I. Packer testifies in one of his books that he may have committed suicide if he had not discovered this truth. He became a Christian in his 20s when he was studying at Oxford and playing in a jazz band and, and in the circle of Christians that he was surrounded with there in his early days as a baby believer, the teaching was Christian perfectionism. That is the idea that even in this life, we can get to a point where we no longer sin. Sometimes the language used to describe this experience was we move beyond Romans 7 and its subpar experience and we get into Romans 8 and the spirit-controlled life. That was the only teaching he knew on this subject, but it caused him to despair because he had a sensitive conscience and he couldn't kid himself. No matter how often he reconsecrated himself, he knew he was far from perfect and then he learned that Luther and Calvin and the Puritans all believed that struggle with sin is normal. This side of heaven, Christians will often, like Paul, feel wretched about sin. That's all my introduction. That's why I take the text the way I do. Now let me tell you what I think it says to us. And by us, I mean Christians. First of all, sometimes we feel wretched because our true self, our new self, our deep down real self hates sin. Verse 15, I hate what I do. Verse 18, I have a desire to do what is good. Verse 19, the evil I do not want to do. Verse 21, I want to do good. Verse 22, in my inner being, that is my deepest, truest self. This kind of language is not how Paul describes the non-Christian. 
Again in chapter 8, this time verse 5, Paul says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. They don't have this strong, compelling desire that Paul testifies to in chapter 7 to do what pleases God. They want to do what pleases their flesh. Verse 7, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. The sinner, apart from God's grace, doesn't hate sin. (laughs) She might hate sin's consequences because sin always leads to bad consequences, but it's the child of God who hates the sin itself. The next time you're troubled by your conscience, examine yourself, examine your heart, and, and do you, in fact, detest the sin, or are you merely dreading the consequences? It, it, it doesn't take a supernatural work of grace in your heart to dread sin's consequences. That comes naturally because sin hurts. It breaks relationships. It, it can lead to physical ailments. Even wanting relief from a guilty conscience is no sure sign of grace. We just don't like the pain of a guilty conscience. But hating the sin, because God hates it, and we want so much to please Him. That's a good sign that the old sin-loving self was crucified with Christ. Only the true Christian can really be wretched over sin. You know, some kinds of pain are normal, even healthy. Dr. Paul Brand, one of the world's leading experts on leprosy, described how leprosy patients lose fingers and toes and sometimes even limbs, not because the disease can cause decay, but precisely because they lack pain sensations. Nothing warns them when water is too hot or a hammer handle is splintered. Uh, Accidental self-abuse describes their bodies. Or destroys their bodies. This is why I'm not surprised when Christians are pained over their sin. Good, I think. Not good that we sin, but good that when we do, it really hurts. When a professing Christian sins and does not feel wretched, then it's time to worry. So, what I've been saying is that sometimes we feel wretched because our truest self hates sin, and furthermore, sometimes we feel wretched because Sin still lives in us. Verse 17. It's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. Verse 20. It's no longer I who do it. It's sin living in me that does not Is Paul trying to make excuses here? A while back in Australia... More than 200 people 
got out of paying traffic fines by blaming it on somebody else. There's a law in one of the states of Australia that if you get a ticket under your windshield or you get in the mail uh, a ticket because uh, a camera caught your car doing something and you swear in a written statement that you were not driving the car at the time, you don't have to pay the fine. And 234 people in that state blamed a dead person or somebody in the next state for having been driving the car at the time. And it might seem like that's what Paul's doing here. Ha, it's not me. Sin did it. But that's not what he's doing because throughout this passage he still accepts responsibility. Verse 15, what I hate, I do. Verse 19, the evil I don't want, I, I keep on doing. And that's why he feels wretched. But he insists that this sin comes not from the new Paul, the true Paul, the Paul who died and rose again with Christ. It comes from the sin that no longer reigns in him, but remains in him. In fact, if that summary helps you, it helped me. I have penciled in at the top of the page at Romans 7. The non-Christian's problem is reigning sin. The Christian's problem is remaining sin. Chapter 6, Paul is very clear. Sin is not your master anymore. It's not the boss. you got a new boss, a new king. But, like the bad old landlord that we've talked about in a couple of sermons Lately, sin is hiding in your basement and making its presence known. I, I've thought about how to illustrate this conflict. Jekyll and Hyde came to mind, but I'm not sure that that's right because both sides of the main character's personality are equal. There, there's not one deeper, truer self there. Um, I thought about the analogy of somebody acting out of... Um, a drug influence, but that seems to absolve the sinning Christian from responsibility. Somebody has said that Paul must have been a golfer because the golfer knows what he wants to do but cannot do it. <laughs> but I'm going to leave all the golfing analogies to Mike. Um, there's no perfect analogy, but this one might help. You may remember that when we studied chapter 6, I used the analogy of changing citizenship. When you trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, you assumed a new loyalty. No longer loyal to the reign of sin and death, but now loyal to the King of life and righteousness. And many, many people have taken the oath of allegiance to the United States and become Americans. But suppose when the national anthem of their country of birth is played, something stirs in them. Or suppose they find themselves driving on the wrong side of the street. You do that in our country, you're going to be wretched. Even if you don't crack up, you're going to 
regret how hard it is to leave the old ways, the old loyalties, the old life behind. This was Paul's experience even when he was at his best. Verses 21 and following. I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil's right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. I love it. I know it's good. It's good for me. <laughs> but I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin that's at work within my members. Even when I'm at my best desiring God's will, there's another law as powerful as the law of gravity frustrating my desire to please God. A man at prayer finds himself fantasizing about illicit sex. A woman singing praise songs discovers feelings of jealousy for one of the worship leaders. A godly man serving others feels pride for being the kind of person who serves other people and then repents of his pride and finds himself feeling proud of being the sort of person who confesses pride. It's awful, Paul says. I don't understand what I do. I know I said in chapter 6 that we're no longer slaves to sin, but sometimes I sure act like a slave to sin. Even back in chapter 6, he said, so don't be a slave to sin. Don't yield. Don't, don't give in. Resist. Reckon this truth to be true and live it out. So sometimes, this is what I'm saying. Long introduction. Now I'm wrapping up what I think the, the text has to say to us. Sometimes we feel wretched because our truest, deepest self, our new self in Christ, hates sin, hate, including hating the sin that we we do. And we feel wretched because this alien power still lives in us. Here's the third truth. You're going to like this one. It won't always be this way. It won't always be this way. Verse 24. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me, thanks be to God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day the king returns. Christ will come again, or if we don't live that long, he'll walk with you through death's valley into heaven, and you will be forever free of temptation. Oh God, we long to love and serve you as the angels do. One holy passion filling our whole frame. That's our desire. That's our desire. To be so holy, so sanctified that like the angels, we just delight in God 24-7, forever and ever, and so shall it be. Until then, we swim upstream. We fight. 
There are times, seasons, when the battle seems to lessen a little bit, but then it heats up again or moves on to new ground. And that's why Paul, after this cry of victory, still ends the chapter with a realistic summary of the normal Christian life. I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in this sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. I chose my sermon title to get attention and to make you think. The normal, wretched Christian life. (laughs) It's meant to be a little provocative, but I fear it could also be misleading. It's not sin that's normal. That's out of character for the new creature in Christ. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Doesn't fit the new me, the man or woman in Christ. Romans 7 is not an excuse to make peace with our sin or to accept a low level of of holiness. We don't read this and say, oh, well, if Paul continued to struggle with sin, who am I to think that I'm any better? I'll just, I'm okay. I'm okay with where I'm at. No, it tells us rather that this wretchedness, this Holy Spirit prompted sorrow over sin and longing for holiness is normal. There's a museum in Italy that has four partially finished sculptures sculptures by Michelangelo. He had intended to use them on the tomb of one of the popes, but midway through the project decided not to use them and just stop working on them, but they've been preserved. And there's a, a hand protruding here out of the marble, a torso of a man there, a leg, part of a head, but, but none of them are finished. And people looking at these sculptures sometimes sense the turmoil, the struggle embedded in them as if they were crying to break free of the prison of marble and become what they were intended to be. I think Paul, if he were to look at those statues, would say, that's a good illustration. I ache to be free from all that compromises my new life in Christ. And like those statues, he would say that he and you and I cannot break free ourselves. We need somebody else. Father, thank you that you sent somebody else. A liberator, a savior. The king in whose hands are healing. The perfect sculptor who will finish your work in us. Jesus Christ whose spirit lives in us and who, chapter 8 goes on to say, empowers us to live the kind of life that you intended your children to live. In that hope, in that hope, help us to live each day as if it could be our last. We could meet the king at the hour of death or at the hour of his return, and we want to be so living that we put a smile on his face. We ask in his name and for his sake. Amen.